Amen. Jesus, we're here to worship you, and we're here to look away from ourselves and towards you and towards your power and towards your authority. And as Nate shared, Lord, all the, all the power to create um, that is held in your words, not ours. And Lord, I pray this morning that through your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would change us. Pray that in each one of us, Lord, that you would create something new. Um, pray that you would mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. And we pray that, Lord, everyone here would be able to leave here this morning knowing that they've heard from you, from your word, from your spirit, knowing that you care for them. Thank you for your great love. It is such a privilege to gather together and to sing with all our might. There's nothing else that we'd rather do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Oh, turn to Romans. Don't want to go there. Got your Bibles? Go to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. We are taking a break from the book of Romans today. And uh, we're going to be looking at a few verses in John 21, although we will talk a little bit about the majority of it as well. God is good, amen? You guys excited to be here? Amen. Yeah. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And uh, it is in his name and by his authority that we gather. Um, when we sing, as we just did, uh, it is not falling on deaf ears, but the risen Christ is seated at the Father's right hand, and he rules and he reigns with all authority. And what I want to look at today in the Gospel of John is just one uh, of the accounts that we have in the Gospels of the resurrected Christ coming to some men who feel very defeated and who very much feel like failures. Um, we will eventually get to a lot of the context of John 21, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to read John 21, verses 15 through 19, which are the primary verses that we'll be looking at together this morning. John chapter 21, starting in verse 15. It says, when they had finished breakfast, um, Jesus cooked them breakfast, <laughs> which I, I don't know, it's not really a theological point, just God cooked them breakfast. I don't know. It's neat. Anyway, um, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, 
he said to him, follow me. Let's pray one more time. Father, please open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, it is, uh, it is springtime, amen? Praise God for the warm weather. Winter does eventually have to uh, yield and give up. And um, as a pastor, and especially as we've grown over the last couple years as a church, uh, one of the things that springtime usually means is it's wedding season. Uh, a lot of, we've got a, quite a few weddings coming up. Um, they're good, they're fun. Um, weddings, from a pastor's perspective, I truly do uh, feel honored and privileged to be able to do them. However, um, it's also one of those things is that if I do my job perfectly, no one will remember it. That's what I'm going for. But if I screw up, everyone is going to remember it. And so, and so I, I like weddings. Obviously, marriage is God's idea. It's an awesome thing. Um, but they always do make me a little bit nervous. In fact, it's the only thing that I actually manuscript my sermon. I mean, word for word, and I just stand there and I just read it because I do not want to screw. I do not want to screw it up. Um, but in thinking about wedding season and the weddings that you know that we've got coming up over over the next couple months, one of the things that's become very popular in the last couple years is that couples will write their own vows to each other. And I'm a fan of it. I, I, I like it. Um, I think it adds a nice personal touch. However, when couples decide to write their own vows, I usually ask that we're still able to incorporate the traditional vows as well, um, and so that we do, do both. And the reason being is because there are just certain things that need to be said, and there are certain questions that need to be asked and answered Otherwise, it just kind of misses the whole point. I'll give you one example. Um, I heard of a wedding, not one that I did, and nobody from here. It, was, it really happened, but it was in a land far, far away, um, where this pastor was, was meeting with this couple that had written their own vows, and they had replaced one of the uh, more traditional vows that usually says, till death do us part, and they had, one, they had replaced that with the phrase, until love from us parts. And so the pastor who was to perform the ceremony caught this, and he kindly explained to the young couple that he didn't believe that that vow rightly represented the biblical idea of a covenant and what um, God's intention is for marriage. Because again, there are just certain questions that need to be asked and that need to be answered because if they're not, despite all the ceremony and all the decoration and all the preparations, you'd simply be missing the point. You with me? And in the same way I share all that to say this, is that in the midst of this day that we call Easter, or maybe as Christians and disciples we should more accurately refer to it as Resurrection Day, um, and in the midst of all the celebration and the, the decorations and the preparation that goes along with it, there are certain questions that need to be asked and certain questions that need to be answered because otherwise we'll miss the whole point. We'll miss the whole point. And that's where I want to go from this text this morning. I just want to ask you two questions. Two questions from the text. One of them we're going to spend the majority of our time on and the second one I will share briefly at the end. Both are important, but the one that I want to spend the majority of my time on is the same question that Jesus asked Peter. 
It's not profound. But if we don't ask it and we don't answer it, we miss the whole point. And that's this. Do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love him? He asks it three times. And if it seems repetitious, it's because it is. <laughs> and that's what I got this morning. <laughs> and we're going to talk around this question. You know, I, um, well, I was meeting some guys Friday morning at Ginger House, and I walked in, and I saw another group of guys that um, don't go to this church, but guys, the guys that I know. And one of the guys was like, hey, you, got, uh, you ready for Sunday? I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. And he goes, Easter Sunday. It's the pastor's Super Bowl. And I was like, well, that's, I mean, I was like, I, okay, I just walked away. Um, no, I get, what he's, I get what he's saying. But there's, there's, you know, there's this artificial tension that we feel to like, I, I don't know, sometimes people say, you got to have a good one for Easter, whatever that means. But I, I don't think there's any more important question that could be asked. Do you love him? And there's a couple things about this question, just some observations that I want to make this morning for the majority of our time together. Um, first of all, I just want to notice the simplicity of it. Secondly, the tenacity with which Jesus asks it. Third, the context in which it's asked. And then fourth, the commands that flow from it. So it's simplicity, it's tenacity, it's context and the commands that come from it. First of all, just it's simplicity. It's not... <laughs> It doesn't seem very profound, but man, is it important. It's not very complex, but man, is it effective. You know, we, um, with the interns on Fridays, sometimes we'll do this little thing that we call stand and deliver. We haven't done it in a while, and a while back, if I'm not mistaken, Matt Miller pointed out that Mark Russell has not done stand and deliver yet. I don't know if Mark's here this morning or not, um, but Mark's been preaching some good sermons lately, so we need to humble him. Um, a little bit. But what stand deliver is, is you just stand up and we, we ask you questions and you got to answer. And, uh, or maybe another way to think of this might, or, or to contrast this with might be thinking of like an ordination process where usually um, if a man is called into the ministry, he'll, he'll have, a, there'll be a denomination or a group or a network or something that will ordain him. And so he'll go before um, some members of the ordination board and they'll ask him um, deep theological questions. And for those of you that, you know, attend Mercy Hill regularly, you know, we, we think we have all the Bible because we need all the Bible and that theology matters and doctrine is really important. However, You'll notice here that in these questions where God is again restoring Peter uh, to the ministry, he's going to attend him here or, or call him here in a little bit as we'll, we'll see to, to feed his sheep, to, to lead, to help, help lead the local church. He, but, but these questions that he asks, he, he's not asking him uh, to give a, a detailed treatise on the Trinity. He's not asking him to um, give some nuance to the reality of the hypostatic union. Or to explain God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and predestination and election and all these things. What he's asking is very simply, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And I wonder if those three questions might not be more effective for many of us than many of the deep theological questions that we sometimes need to ask and then readily answer because it can kind of make us feel good about ourselves. But this is the question that we need to ask. It's very simple. Do we love him? 
And not only is it simple, but again, Jesus presses it with a tenacity that's almost annoying, if we're honest. I don't know if it was annoying to Peter, but he was grieved by it. Did you notice that? He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? In verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And the third time he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says, Peter was grieved because he asked him this the third time. Now, there's some little technical nuance here that I, that I want to point out, and there's quite the debate over what exactly it means. But there are different words in the Greek language uh, for love, and John uses both of them here in telling, in telling this story. And let me just read it back again with these, with these words. The words are agape and phila'o. And traditionally speaking, most people think that agape is like the highest, purest form of love. The problem with that is, is that the Bible many times uses them interchangeably, that they're almost synonymous. So for example, not only does the father, it says agape the son, but it also in other places says that the father phila'os the son. And so, the, and so both are used interchangeably, but here's the way that the question is asked in John's narrative. He says, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And then Peter responds and he says, Lord, you know that I phila'o you. And then he says again, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And then he says again, Lord, you know that I phila'o you. But then the third time, Jesus changes it and he says, Simon, son of John, do you phila'o me? And Peter was grieved. And there's kind of this debate over whether or not it's because of the change in term that Jesus used or whether or not it was just because of the third time and you know, commentators, commentators kind of spread out over you know, what exactly this, this, this means. But here's the point that I would just like to say with certainty is that Jesus asked a question that intentionally made Peter sad. And I just want to say by way of extension this morning, do you know that the risen Christ will press in on the true condition of your heart to the place that it will actually grieve you at times? That the risen Christ has authority to make us sad because he's pressing in on where we're really at with him, on whether or not we truly love him, and what the condition of our heart really is, Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And Jesus goes after this with a tenacity, and again, not in any way to be mean. I'll come back around in just a second and explain why I think he does this. But first of all, notice not only the simplicity and the tenacity with which he asks it, but also the context in which it's asked. And the context, if you had to sum up the context of, of what's going on here, I think there's one word that rises above every other description of the setting in which we find ourselves where Jesus is asking um, Simon Peter this question. And the context is this. The context is one of failure. <laughs> Utter, total failure. That Peter had followed Jesus for three years he was kind of the leader of the 12. When there was a question asked to the group, Peter was usually kind of the representative that would speak back and would kind of answer for the group. Um, you guys know the story that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter denies him three times. And again, I love the Bible. It is so real. It is so raw. It is so true to life. And I'm not, giving, I'm not saying this is okay to do. Obviously, it's not. It was very sinful. And yet the Bible does not hold back from, from telling us these details. Is that on the night that you know, Jesus was arrested and Peter follows him 
you know, into this courtyard and Jesus had already told Peter that he's going to deny him three times and Peter said, no, no, not me. If everybody else fails, I will not fail. If everybody else denies you, I will not deny you. And then he said, to put the cherry on top, he's like, I will follow you even to death. And just a few hours later from that statement, there is a little servant girl that is standing with him around a fire along with some others. She goes, you're one of his disciples. He goes, no, I'm not. She asks him again, you're one of his disciples. I don't know him. Then she asks him a third time, and Peter, it pushes Peter over to the edge, and it says he denies it with cursing. He says, I don't know him. I don't know him. And the third time, I don't bleep and know him. Now that's failure. <laughs> it's failure on an unbelievable level. Not only is Peter living in the context of that failure, but there's another more superficial failure that um, maybe isn't as bad. It's maybe not sinful, but it still kind of stings. If you go back in the beginning of John chapter 21, it says that Jesus comes to them in the early morning hours and they had been fishing all night. And again, why were they fishing? I think because they felt like failure as disciples. They felt like failures as those who were supposed to follow Jesus and, and to help lead his church. And so they go back to what they thought they could do well. And if you look over at the beginning of, of John chapter 21, verse 3, Simon Peter says to the rest of them, I'm going fishing. What do you do when you don't know what to do and you feel like a failure? You just go get the rod and reel. You cast it out. Sit down by the water. Try to forget about your worries and your failures. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And I love verse 5. Again, you got to understand how the disciples were probably feeling at this point. Feeling like failures as disciples. But hey, at least we know how to fish. And no, didn't catch any fish either. And again, Jesus presses into it. Because <laughs> he knew. He knew. And he shouts out from the shore. you got to love this. Children, do you have any fish? And then again, how do, you, how do you read the response? Very simple. No. There's a lot of failure going on. And of course, Jesus tells them to cast their net on the other side, which would have been, again, we don't have time to go into all this, but which would have sounded familiar to their ears because he'd done this before. And they cast the net on the other side, and they pull in all these fish. Simon Peter realizes from that miracle that it's him. He dives into the water. He goes to shore. And there he finds a fire, which is another neat little contextual clue. John, throughout his, throughout his writings, John, John's writing, again, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it's, it's just so beautiful. And there's these little details that he leaves us that bring nuance and depth to the story. But you'll notice in verse 9, it says when they got to land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. And that little phrase, the exact phrase, charcoal fire, it's used one other time in John's gospel back in chapter 18. And it's when Jesus, or I'm sorry, it's when Peter had been standing inside the courtyard after they'd arrested Jesus following at a distance. 
And it says, now there were servants, and now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter stands there and warms himself right alongside the fires of the world. And now here's this charcoal fire again. Again, I think taking Peter back to that place. But the context is one of total failure. Peter had denied Jesus three times. Jesus asks the question three times. It's the context of failure. And if I can, here's the point, I think. And again, this is simple, but I think it brings clarity, and I think it's important to understand as a disciple of Jesus Christ if you're going to follow him and not miss the point about what Easter and the authority of the risen Lord is all about. Is that As I said a little bit ago, not only is it a context of failure, but this context in which Jesus with whatever's going on, he somehow intentionally grieves him. The reason he intentionally grieves him and the reason he comes in all this failure is because he teaches us something. In our failure in our, in, and in our grief that shape us more deeply than the things that we learn in the times of our success or the times when things are going well. I think about my life and I think about all the times that I've failed. And not all of them, but to be honest, just the really big ones. (laughs) But there's a lot of really big ones. And by fail, I don't just mean not catching fish. I mean sin. I mean where I haven't followed Jesus. I mean where I've said things that I shouldn't have said and done things that I shouldn't have done and acted in ways that weren't just a little bit off, but they were dark And I remember those times, and I think I always will, because Jesus comes to us in in, in his grace and in his mercy, and he wants to teach us something. And so Jesus comes here with simplicity, a tenacity. The context is one of failure. But then notice, too, that out of this simple question, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me, there comes two commands. One of them is repeated three times. We'll look at that one first. He says, feed my lambs. The second one is very like it. Again, they're pretty much synonymous. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Now notice, and again, I think there's, there's purpose here. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a master teacher. I, why doesn't he just come with a command? Simon Peter, do you, or Simon Peter, love me, love me, love me. But it's not a command, it's a question. And again, he asks questions because he wants us to be honest and examine our hearts. And again, he comes to us in our failure and in our grief because um, we listen more in our failure. And not only that, but in our failure, many times, we can't lie about the truth, right? I mean, for those of you with kids, Sometimes you know they did something, but you're not exactly sure. But other times, you catch them red-handed, right? Like, you see them. They'll still try to deny it sometimes, but I'm like, I, I saw you. I saw you do it. You can't get out of this. And when he comes to us in our failure, it, it makes us confess what is really true. And again, what Jesus is pressing here is, do you love me? Do you love me? 
Do you love me? He's pressing that in the midst of their failure, wanting him to be honest about it. And I, and I think that, I think that uh, Peter's response is, is a good response. He says, Lord, you know. You know, you know. Every time he says, you know. And the last time he says, you know, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then every time after his response, again, this command, Jesus says, okay. If that's true, here what I want, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tend my sheep. What does that mean? Here's what, here's what I think it means. And again, this isn't profound or anything. But I think it simply means that he wants Peter to do whatever needs to be done to love the people that God has placed in his life. That's it. And again, going back to the question I asked at the beginning, or, or kind of the tension that I, I wanted to set up for us, is that in the midst of Easter and all the preparation and the decoration and the celebration and all these things, what needs to be done? Well, first of all, I want to ask this question, do you love him? But secondly, are you loving the people that he's placed in your life? Because if God's love has truly come to you, it's got to come through you. If God's love has truly come in you, it's absolutely got to come out of you. And it's very easy to come and just be part of a celebration in some way, but in the same way that a husband and a wife, it's not just about the celebration, it's not just about uh, the venue, it's not just about the cake, it's not just about what food you have catered, it's about the vows that are being said. Vows that say, till death do us part. And this is what Jesus is pressing home here, that if we say that we truly love him, then he wants us to love others. That's it. You know, he doesn't need anything from us. You know that? He, like, what are we going to do for him? <laughs> he created everything. He created the world. But what he wants from us is to lay down our lives for the people that he's placed around us. Whatever it takes. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. I am not a farmer. I'll be honest with you. I praise God that I'm not a farmer. I have nothing against farmers. I'm thankful for farmers because I like to eat cows and chickens and eggs and everything, everything else, but just every day, you go out, you got to feed them. You got to care for them. You got to make sure they're okay. Sheep, from what I understand, are dumb. They'll get their heads caught in fences and get lost all the time. And again, we know that all too well because we're, we're sheep as well, aren't we? But he wants us to love the people around him. And in my, in my Bible, I had done this a while back. Um, again, the end of John 21, you come to the end of a book, there's usually some extra space at the bottom of it because it's before it goes on. Uh, to the book of Acts, but I had just written in the bottom of it this, these verses from 1 Peter chapter 5, again, the man that Jesus is speaking to here and pressing in on with this simple but tenacious question of whether or not he loves me. And Peter, later on, towards the end of his life, writing to the church, he, he, he says this. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker 
in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. But then he says this, because at this point you're like, well, Eric, I'm not an elder, and so is he really talking to me, and does that apply? But then he rolls right out of that into this. And then he says, all of you, all of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And then he says this, and I, and I can't imagine that he's not thinking about his failure and about this time that Jesus restored him. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's a lesson that Peter would have learned um, with, again, quite a bit of pain. The second command that flows out of this question that he asks about whether or not he loves him is simply this. Follow me. Follow me. This is a command that Jesus gave to all the disciples while he was here before his crucifixion, and it doesn't change. He gives it to them after the crucifixion and after the resurrection as well. He says to him, follow me. And again, the context of this command, not only the questions that he asked, but the, the, this, this prophecy about how he's going to die, about crucifixion. Look at verse 18. And again, this is, a, uh, this is an intense camp, campfire, if you will. He says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. In other words, Peter, that's, you just kind of did whatever you wanted because you know what you want and you're a go-getter and you're a type A personality and you're just, you're making it happen. But he says, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and he will carry you where you do not want to go. And then John gives this parenthetical kind of commentary at the beginning of verse 19. He says, this was to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And so if the campfire wasn't intense enough, it got even more intense here. He tells Peter how he's going to die. And again, I, 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 know, it's, I know it's Easter, um, and I don't know what our demeanor or our mood is here right now in this, in this moment, but you know the same is true of your life, right? Jesus knows how you're going to die. The Bible says in Psalm 139 that every day ordained for me was written in his book before one of them came to be. And you'll notice that the setup that Jesus has for Peter here is history, church history tells us that Peter was crucified. He felt unworthy to be crucified like his Lord, so he requested to be crucified upside down, and that most likely is true. It also goes along with what Jesus seems to describe here with the stretching out of his hands and having the crossbar placed on his back and walking to a place where he would not have wanted to go, and yet he did. Why? As verse 19 says, for the glory of God. Said so again, folks, and <clears throat> I know this is heavy, but... Again, in the midst of everything that's going on, if we don't ask this question, then I think we miss the whole point. Is that 
in your confession that you love him, are you willing to follow him even to death? Is he Lord of your life just in the good times and the okay times and he's Lord of your life when things get a little bit hard but not too hard, but is he, or is he Lord of your life all the way to death? That Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, has authority to tell you how you're gonna die and that we don't resist it, but we say, okay, okay. It's for your glory. And this idea of then after setting up the authority that he has to tell him how he's going to die, he again gives him this command that flows out of the question and then the other command to also love, but it's just this, follow me. What does that mean? Here's two things that I mean. I, I think that follow me, you, you could, I mean, everything in the Gospels and the life of discipleship could fall underneath the heading of follow me, okay? But here's two things that it's gotta mean for sure. Number one, it means that you're not in charge. Amen? If we're following, it means that we're not in charge. He is. It means that he's in charge and we're not by implication. And so I ask you this morning, do you love him? Will you love his people? And is he in charge of your life? Or are you? Because all these things go hand in hand. Again, we didn't read this part, but if you jump to verse 20, how quickly, how quickly we can scoot from this. Again, there's, I think they're sitting around the campfire. I think verse 19, when Jesus says, follow me, I think, again, in John's gospel, John's gospel is just littered with like double entendres and double meanings. And so, yes, on one level he's saying, follow me even unto death. It's a call, again, to follow him to discipleship. But it seems that I think they also get up from the campfire and they begin to walk along the shore. Because in verse 20, it says that Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And so when Jesus says in, in verse 19, follow me, I think they get up and they begin to walk, but immediately Peter begins to turn around to take his eyes off of Jesus and to look back to someone else. Here it's John, but it could have been anybody. And the point is simply this, is that if we say that we love him and we're going to obey him and we're going to follow him and he's in charge and we're not in charge, what that means is we keep our eyes fixed on him. Fixed on him. And so again, by implication, the question is this morning, are your eyes fixed on him? Do you love him? Do you love his people? Are you following him? Are you in charge or is he in charge? But are your eyes fixed on him? Have you taken your eyes off of him? And not just put them on something else, but on someone else. Following Christ is not easy. It is extremely difficult, but it is also not complicated. We keep our eyes fixed on him, and we follow him to the very end. Amen? Do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love him? Now, I said that I was going to ask a second question. And again, that first question, do you love him? So where we've spent the majority of our time. But here's the second question, and it is of the utmost importance as well. And the second question is this. Do you know that he loves you? With the same simplicity and tenacity 
and intensity that we've asked the first question, do you love him? We also need to ask the question, do you know that he loves you? Because friends, he does. (laughs) He loves you so much. Our love for Christ is very imperfect, but his love for us is not. His love for us is absolutely perfect, and he has proven it by going to the cross, as Nate shared earlier. And with the power and the authority that he has, he, just what Nate said, he, he says, I forgive you. Um, you know, it, it is interesting, that idea of the charcoal fire. I just, uh, where, where Paul and again, for those of you that attend Mercy Hill regularly, we've been looking in Romans, and it's, it's the writings of the Apostle Paul, and he very much speaks like a lawyer in very technical language and terms you got to stop and define and, and understand. And as opposed to that, John very much writes not like a lawyer, but like a poet. And just this idea of sitting with Jesus around the fire. Do you guys ever, like, my family, we, we, don't, we do this now and then. I know a lot of people do, but like, Sometimes my mom will just send out a text now that it's, you know, it's getting warmer and stuff. Hey, we're having a fire tonight. And do you guys do that? And we just, what, what is it? We just, you just go out and I'm like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring our little lawn chairs and we're going to just sit around the fire. And we're just going to kind of stare at it. <laughs> but we're going to talk. There might be some marshmallows, some s'mores Maybe. Some, you know, some hot dogs, maybe. But we're just going to be around the fire. And again, I, I think that's a, it's something that's common to all human experience. But especially back in, in this day. I mean, they didn't have microwaves and air fryers and skillets and ovens. I mean, this is how you cooked stuff. And so you were regularly around the fire. And please, I, man, think about the beauty of what Jesus is doing here and his great love for Peter is that up until this point, again, if, if this doesn't happen, I think every single time that Peter gets around a fire, which would have been like every day, he's going to remember that time when he failed. The time when he stood around that charcoal fire and he denied him. He said, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't bleep and know him. So it's like every day he would have been triggered by this this idea of being around the fire and being overwhelmed by his failure. But here comes Jesus. And he builds another fire. And he invites Peter around it, not to shame him, but to restore him. To take away that, that, and again, I'm sure that memory of his failure was on some level always with him, but now he's got another memory to go around with it. Not just the time around the fire when he denied him, but the time around the fire where Jesus restored him. And where Jesus loved him. And again, I ask the question, do you know that he loves you? Brother, sister, do you know this morning, I do not care what the failure is that is represented in these seats here this morning. No matter what the failure is, the grace of God is greater. 
And he wants to restore you. He wants to show you his love. Absolutely, he will not hold back. He is the risen Lord, risen from the dead, alive forever, has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he will press in on your heart, and he'll ask you questions, and above them all, he'll say, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? But at the same time, he invites you around his campfire. And he wants to replace the memory of your failure with the memory of his mercy. Do you know that? Again, I, I think John and Paul, two very different men, but this is what we've been looking at as a church, and we'll look at it again next week when, when we finish up Romans chapter 5, and it just says this, and this is the way Paul says it. John describes it as being around a campfire and being restored. Paul says it this way, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That Jesus... The risen Christ has power and authority to replace the memory of your failure with the memory of his mercy because he loves you. He really does. Worship team, you can come up and we're going to close. And if you guys would just do me a favor this morning, would you just close your eyes and bow your heads? Again, I'm talking to a bunch of us here this morning. There's a bunch of us in this room. But the, the passage that we looked at, I mean, there's a few disciples around, but it's primarily Jesus and Peter. And I just, in the quietness of your heart, I'm not trying to be weird or overly dramatic, but from the authority of the word of God, I just want you to think about Jesus asking you that question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Again, I, I think if all of us are honest, we'd have to answer kind of like how Peter did. Like, yeah, I, I love you, but Lord, you know. You're the one that knows everything. Secondly, I want to ask you, is he asking you to follow him somewhere right now in this season of your life? How is he asking you to obey? Where is he asking you to go? What is he asking you to do? What conversations does he want you to have? Who does he want you to love? Who does he want you to tend and to feed and to lay down your life for and to care for? Are you following him there? Are you willing to go where he's going or have you taken your eyes off of him? And if you have, right now, in this moment, by the grace of God, just get your eyes back on him. That's it. Believe him. He invites you into fellowship with him forever. And if you're here this morning, and you have been crippled by the weight of your failure, just like Peter was, on the authority of the word of God and because of the blood that was shed and because of Christ's perfect love for us. Simple as this is, but I don't know what else to say. Brother, sister, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. 
Jesus Christ came to take all the guilt, the darkness, the evil, the pain, the hurt. He put it on him. God put it on him. I don't understand all this, but somehow when the light of the world was hung on the cross, there literally was darkness for several hours in the Middle East. The sun of the Middle East was blinded, and as the light of the world was put on the cross, darkness came over the whole land. And Jesus Christ took that darkness, and he took it down into the grave with him. It went with him into the grave. But on the third day, he came out. But the sin was left. And whatever your failure is, if you have trusted Christ alone for salvation, your failure, your sin, your darkness, your evil, all the implications of everything that it's caused, it is in the grave. But you have been raised with Christ. And nothing can change that. So Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning. We thank you for the message of hope, the power of the resurrection, and the clarity of the gospel. And Lord, I do pray that you would press us again and again and again as long as we live with that simple but tenacious question, do we love you? But Father, I pray that we would never forget how perfectly you have loved us. Thank you for all that you've done. We pray against bondage. We pray against sin. We pray against despair. And we pray for the resurrection life of Christ to be alive in everyone who has trusted you. Help us to follow you, Jesus, even to death. Help us to guard our hearts and help us not to miss the point in the midst of everything else going on. Help us not to miss the point. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys stand with me and we'll sing.